you saw lots of handouts this week. One of them uh, was also a handout that you got last week that I forgot to mention. Um, it's called Discipline to the Home. And so even though we are this morning, last week was kind of our segue, and now this morning we're going to officially move into discipline number three, we still wanted you to have that um, handout. I'd really encourage you to use that as a resource. It's got some great passages in there that will really help you to understand God's heart for the home. We don't ever want to move away from that. It's one of the reasons why we're giving it to you at the end so that you don't forget that our focus always has to continue to uh, remain on discipline number two, even though officially we're going to be talking about discipline three starting this morning. So that's for you. Take it out um, occasionally, and there's a lot on there. So it'll just be some great information for you. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, we are just so thankful to be here this morning. Father, we ask for your help as we begin to look at our own ministries and at ministry in general. Father, you have done a work in us by your grace. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son to die for us, to take on the wrath that should have been poured on us. And as a result of that, you have given us new life. We are new creatures in Christ. And because of that, we our lives are different. Father, we long to be used by you to serve others. And so I pray as we begin this morning to look at what that service looks like, that you would help us to understand, that we would look into our own hearts to see where our attitude, um, maybe where our attitudes need to be changed, but most of all, that we would look to Jesus, our perfect example of service. And so thank you. Thank you for providing this place for us to meet <clears throat> so that we can look into your word together. I pray for Wellspring Kids this morning. Father, I pray that there would be much gospel ministry going on um, as they present the lesson and the craft and the snacks. And I just thank you for those faithful women who serve you as they serve the children. And uh, so we just ask now that you would help us as we open up your word. And we thank you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Turn over your notebooks. And uh, let's review our disciplines. <clears throat> now I pray that as we do this, that you don't just tune out. You don't just go, okay, I've got a couple minutes. I can think about what needs to be done for the rest of the day, whatever. There's a reason that we go through these every week. Because it's helpful for us to constantly be thinking about them. What would be better than for these to be so ingrained in us that say you're having coffee with a friend or maybe you're a young mom and you get together with another mom and your kids are playing and you are thinking, I want to care for this sister. I want to serve her. And as you're thinking that, your mind would automatically go to these disciplines that you would know that the best place to start is you want to care for your sister in Christ is to talk about what? Where do you start? Talk about her heart. To say something like, tell me how your heart is with God. Tell me about your time in the Word. What impact is that having on your home life? How is that influencing your marriage? How is that impacting the way that you care for your children? How is that affecting the time that you spend with your roommates? Or what impact does that have on your attitude as you're caring for elderly parents? See, again, remembering that it all starts with the heart. If these disciplines are on our mind, then we'll know that from there we can begin to talk about how she's influencing the church. We can ask questions like, how are you serving in our body? 
How are you working to keep the gospel central to your ministry? See, these disciplines aren't just for us to be thinking about personally, although that certainly is where we start. But they are also the framework by which we care for one another. And so what we're trying to do every week in Wellspring as we go over these disciplines is to remind ourselves and to commit to unify around these disciplines, first individually and then to commit to help each other also. This is what the women of our church are called to do. We shepherd our hearts, we shepherd our homes, and we care for one another. So I trust by now, we're on discipline number three, I trust that you are convinced that everything, everything flows out of discipline number one. Think back on our lesson last week as we looked at Martha and the consequences of her not shepherding her heart. I pray it was helpful as we looked into her life to see the danger of skipping over discipline number one. Just as with Martha, there will be consequences if we do not first shepherd our hearts. That's why discipline number one must be at the foundation. If we fill our hearts with the word of God and the God of the word, we have something to contribute in regard to God's gospel work in the people around us. But again, as we saw last week in Mary, it takes purposeful choice, doesn't it? So with that in mind, let's move on now to discipline number three, ministry, and let's look at the example of Paul. So would you take out your outlines and open up your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1. Now one thing that I think is helpful as we read this passage is to know that Paul was with the Thessalonian church at the most three months and at minimum three weeks. It's mentioned in Acts 17 that he was with them for three Sabbaths. So we could take that as his being with them three weeks. But it's more likely that he was with them a little bit longer than that. He may have mentioned that because he was reasoning with them on three Sabbaths of the time that he was with them. So keep that in mind as we go over this passage this morning. A church existed in Thessalonica because a man preached the gospel for about three months. That's pretty amazing. And we're going to look at what he has to write to them now. So what I'd like to do is read the entire chapter, and then we're going to focus our attention on verses 5 through 10. So please read along with me as I read the passage. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And then Paul begins to offer an explanation of what chosen ones look like and what a ministry in the gospel looks like to chosen ones. He said in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need 
to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead that is Jesus Christ who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now with our focus on verses 5 through 10 I want us to look at five ministry statements that will help us better understand discipline number three. What ministry is all about. So you have those on your outline. We're going to begin this week by looking at the first three and then we'll finish up next week. So let's begin with number one. Ministry has only one message, the gospel. If we're going to talk about ministry, about discipline number three, it's important to understand that ministry has one message, and it's the gospel. Paul says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is affirming that the gospel did come to them. Okay, now let's look at some other scripture that might help us better understand the way Paul viewed gospel ministry. Go to Romans 1. <clears throat> Even though this may be familiar to you, I think it's good for us to look at this and be reminded of how broadly Paul, excuse me, Paul makes use of the gospel. If we're going to say that ministry has one message and it's the gospel, we need to make sure that we understand how Paul uses gospel. So look at uh, chapter 1, verse 11 of Romans. Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Okay, it's clear that in Paul's mind, he's writing to Christians. He's saying, I want to be encouraged by your faith in Jesus Christ, and I want you to be encouraged by my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I'm eager to come to you. I long to see you. Now drop down to verse 15. He says, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul wants to preach the gospel to Christians. Now, don't we usually think of the gospel as what we preach to unbelievers? Paul's thinking reveals that we often have a small view of the gospel. It's true, we do preach the gospel to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. But that's not the only use for the gospel. That kind of thinking is missing something very important, that the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. His whole point is to preach the gospel to those who believe. Okay, that's in the first chapter of Romans. Now let's go to the end of the letter. Turn to Romans 16. Okay, he begins with this benediction by greeting the Christians who are in, in, who are in the churches. Okay, he, he speaks of Phoebe, who's the fellow servant of the church, Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, Mary, who has worked hard for them. He mentions his fellow prisoners, and he goes on listing many by name. He's talking about Christians in the churches. Now, let's read verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you according 
to my gospel. Okay, now remember that phrase, my gospel. We're going to come back to that in 1 Thessalonians. But right here, Paul wants to establish these Christians according to the gospel. Paul's thought is, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to preach the gospel to you who already believe. And then at the end of the letter, he says, I want you to be established, strengthened, according to the gospel. So the first chapter is about the gospel. That's Paul's concern. And in the last chapter, he's concerned about the gospel. What do you think is in between? Do you think it's going to be something other than the gospel? No. What's in between is some of the richest gospel theology we'll find anywhere. We need to understand how inseparable theology and gospel are. How important it is that our doctrine is in accordance with the gospel. It's all about the gospel. That's the way Paul sees it. You preach the gospel, you begin with the gospel, you take forward steps forward in the gospel. It's all the gospel. It's where all theology and doctrine are rooted. They're inseparable. So with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> Paul is emphasizing that the gospel came to them. His main thought as he reflects back on his ministry with them is that the gospel engaged them. It's all over his letter to them. Look at verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians. <clears throat> but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Now look at verse 4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Now look at verses 8 and 9. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's leading concern as he thinks back on his time with them is that it was all about the gospel. And what we need to remember as we step into one another's lives in our church and beyond our church is that this must be our leading concern. When we talk about discipline number three, we're talking about ministry concerning the gospel with one another. We're bringing the gospel into everything. We want to help one another engage with the fullness of the gospel. How sad if we stepped into one another's lives and gave the impression that the gospel was only that which saved us in the past. No, the gospel has everything to do with right now. So if we're saying that ministry is all about the gospel, then what must we know? We must know the gospel. If we're bringing the gospel into everything, if it's how we're saved, and if we want to help each other understand how to use the gospel every day in our battle with sin, in our thought life, in our relationships, in our service, in everything, then we need to know it. Because scripture tells us that the gospel is the power of God. It tells what the gospel accomplishes in us, our union with Christ, and that we can now live in a manner that honors him. So although it was in your homework last week, and many of you did a great job at articulating 
the gospel. We're going to have you look at it again in your homework this week. And maybe refine it. See if there's anything, any changes that you need to make, any additions maybe that you need to make as you look that over. But you want to look back and make sure that you've included the truth about God and his character. The truth about sin and its effects, its consequences. The truth about Jesus and what he has done. And you'll want to make sure that you include the result, the effects and benefits for those who repent and believe this good news. So you'll want to include forgiveness and what new life looks like. You received a handout this morning that gives three resources to help you better understand and communicate the gospel. I think for some of us it's easy to maybe understand it up here, But we want to do more than understand it. We want to understand it in such a way that we can communicate it to those who don't believe, but also to one another. So as we continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and its purpose, I think we will be more willing to share it. Again, to those who don't believe and to those who believe. So if you need help in understanding this, ask your small group leader. Ask someone, maybe in your group, to help you if you feel like you need more help in that to be able to communicate it. We must not be content until we know it and we understand it. See, knowing the gospel is not just information. It's about knowing Christ. It needs to saturate us. Because it tells us about our Savior. That's what belongs in the center of our relationships. Just as it was for Paul. We need to learn to come into our relationships thinking, you're my sister in Christ, or my brother in Christ, and I want to give you the gospel. Is that your heart? When you're with someone... We also want to have the attitude of, you're my sister, and I want you to give me the gospel. Is that our heart when we go to someone when we're struggling? Do we ask others to preach the gospel to us? Because when we are struggling, what we need more than anything else is to be reminded of the great truths of the gospel and the power of the gospel. We need to believe that humbly going to the gospel together will give us eyes to see God's grace and to be transformed by his grace in that area that we're struggling in. That's what it means to be ministry-minded with each other. That takes some heart shepherding, doesn't it? It takes practice. Our habit when we're struggling, I think oftentimes may be to not look to the gospel. We may find some kind of sinful pleasure in wallowing in our struggle, in feeling offended or hurt or indignant as we saw last week as we looked at Martha. Or we might feel, um, struggle with self-righteousness. And so we need to be careful and make sure that we are walking humbly with one another as we learn to move the gospel into center stage. We continue to be compassionate and sympathetic, concerned with one another, mourning with those who mourn, And in the midst of loving one another, we bring the gospel to one another. Because that is where our hope is. And that's where we are drawn back to the lover of our souls. Now there's one more thing that I want to mention before we move on. Notice what Paul said in verse 5 of chapter 1. 
He said, for our gospel. Now remember back in, in uh, Romans 16, he said, my gospel. Now he says, our gospel. Why? Because it is Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy who are writing. So he says it is our gospel. That's ownership. How can Paul say that? It's obviously because he didn't invent it. He did not invent it. Rather, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, tells us that he received the gospel. It's his because the gospel was given to him. And therefore, because the gospel owns him and has produced fruit in him, Paul has taken ownership of it. The gospel came to him, he received it, it took hold of him, and he owned it. It's his. Do you see what a bold statement this is for Paul to make? He owns the gospel. Do you? Do you own the gospel? Is the gospel yours? Now that's something worth pondering. What would change if I thought of the gospel as my gospel? If you thought of it as your gospel? Well, you know what? We need to. Because it is our gospel if we, like Paul, are in Christ. So ministry has only one message, and it's the gospel. Now let's look at point number two. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. As important as the gospel message is, that's not Paul's leading concern in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. The interesting thing is that here he is more concerned to talk not about the content of the message, but about the carrier of the message. His concern is to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. Why? Because there were some terrible accusations going on around in Thessalonica. And they were not slanderous statements about the gospel. They were slanderous statements about Paul. And so Paul had to set things straight. So let's look again at verse 5 of chapter 1. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How did the gospel come? It did come in word, but not in word only. It came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came with full conviction. And how do we know that the gospel came that way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Let's finish reading verse 5. He says, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Okay, just as is a word showing comparison. It's kind of like an equal sign. Paul is saying that the evidence that the gospel came to them in this way is the kind of messengers that he and his co-laborers were. Paul is saying they came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction when they brought the gospel. Paul is focusing them beyond just the content of the gospel message. When he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers three things about it. Okay, first he remembers that he came to them and then second, that there was power. In his interaction with them, there was the power of God among them. And he remembers that his coming was in the Holy Spirit. And then number three, he remembers that when they came, they had fullness of confidence. They had full conviction that what they were doing as gospel, as, 
excuse me, about what they were doing as gospel messengers. That's what he's describing here. Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 really is about describing the gospel messenger. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of this lesson. The quality of the messenger is extremely important. We've got to be the right kind of person in ministry, an uncommon messenger who comes in power, who comes in the Holy Spirit, and who comes with full conviction about the power and hope of the gospel for every circumstance. Don't we want to be that kind of women? I'll be honest, when I hear three descriptive phrases like this, I realize that I set my sights for ministry far too low. But when Paul thinks back on his ministry with the Thessalonians, what he seems to remember is the power that accompanied his ministry. I don't usually think that way. I don't always think as I bring the gospel into my relationships, God, I need your power, your power and the Holy Spirit. And I need full conviction that the gospel is sufficient in everything. I forget that sometimes. But what if we did think that way? What if that was the focal point of our lives as we bring the gospel into every part of our own lives, to our families, to our friends, to those in our church, to those beyond our church? What if we were thinking, God, I need your power today in this conversation, in this response? I need your spirit with full conviction. Do you see what a difference that would make? We would be women dependent, not on our own strength, but dependent on him. So how do we become that kind of woman? You already know, we shepherd our hearts with the word of God to meet with him, and say, God, please, I need your power and your spirit and full conviction of the sufficiency of your gospel. And what does that power look like? Turn over to 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. He says, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here is the Apostle Paul, a man of power, with the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, and he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Now look at verse 8. Having so fond an affection for you, that we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Is that how we typically define power? Gentle? A nursing mother? Tender care? Affection? If not then we need to change our definition of power because that kind of power describes Jesus, a powerful man and yet the gentlest man, the meekest man on the earth. And this is the way we want God's power and his spirit and full conviction about the abundant sufficiency of the gospel to be displayed in our relationships. And ch chapter 1, verse 5, ends by saying, Just as you know what kind of men we proved 
to be among you for your sake. What kind of women do we want to prove to be? Will we be gentle messengers of the gospel? Think about what this is saying. Will we be like nursing mothers, tenderly caring for our children? We need to be that kind of women. What will it take in your life, in my life, to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people in our lives? Let's shepherd our hearts to the word of God, to get to the gospel, to get to Jesus. Plead with God for his power, long for it. Ask for the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in your life. Plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives in your ministry. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger. And that brings us to number three. Ministry involves imitation. Let's continue in verse 6. It begins, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Whoa. Think about what he's saying. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11.1. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Wow. Paul's pattern of life was so in was so in alignment with Christ's pattern of life that he could say if you imitate me you will imitate Christ. As believers that's what we all should strive to be. You know the adage more is caught than taught. Our goal is to make sure that the gospel comes in words, but our goal also needs to push a step beyond that so that our prayer is, God, please make me into an imitatable woman. Make me an example for others to imitate. Ladies, people are watching us. What the gospel enables us to do as we align our life with Christ is to live a life worth imitating. Our desire and our prayer and our plan should be that we would so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we imitate Christ. God's design in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but that we give each other an example to follow. What does that mean? Well, let's start by what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we have to put on an error that tries to make others think that we have it all together in some way. We don't. So let's not try to uh, make have others think something that we're not, okay? It's not drumming up your own works-based righteousness. Rather, a godly woman, an imitatable woman, is a woman who lives a life of repentance. When we blow it, when we sin, we go to our parents, our kids, our roommates, our husbands, whoever it is that we've sinned against, and we seek their forgiveness. How about the people you work with? Talk about rocking their world. The world doesn't know what to do with repentance. Others will clearly see that there is something different about us if we seek their forgiveness. Part of shepherding our hearts is preaching the gospel to our sinful hearts. Going to the cross with our sin and shepherding it with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus paid for that sin. 
He died for it. And we're no longer a slave to it. And that he has provided a way for us to be obedient. We must shepherd our heart to God and plead with him to make us a reflection of Christ. See, Paul understood that. In 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul describes himself as the foremost of sinners. Yet, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's obvious that he knew that following Christ involved preaching the gospel to his own sinful heart. And so must we. When we do, it brings a humble joy as we rest in the completed work of the cross. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That kind of Galatians 2.20 living is worth imitating. Now, let's look again at verse 6 and see specifically how they imitated Paul. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We need to remember, because we often forget, that we live in enemy territory. This truth needs to be preached to our hearts as well. We live in a very volatile place and time. There is a real rebel who is fighting against our king. He's the prince of the power of the air. And there are rebels who are following that rebel prince. And the rebels that follow him are hostile toward our king. And oftentimes, they will be hostile against us as well because of our loyalty to him. But God, in his design by his plan, The gospel goes forward, and oftentimes many receive the gospel in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Paul experienced that, and he says specifically in verse 6 that you became imitators of us, having received the word in much tribulation. But look at what it says after that. See, if I wrote this, I probably would have put a period right there. But the verse doesn't end there. He says, Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, I don't always think that tribulation and affliction and joy go together. I'm tempted to think that tribulation and affliction will diminish my joy. But this verse tells us that tribulation comes with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you John 15. This is what Jesus said to his disciples on the last night before he went to the cross. He tells us that there is only one true joy, and it's his joy. In verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Do you want to have fullness of joy? Jesus says there is only one true joy. The only way we're going to have, (coughs) excuse me, the only way that we're going to have joy is if it's His joy in us. Joy is rooted in Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Now I want to read John 16, 20. This is the same night before Jesus goes to the cross. And he said, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. 
You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy away from you. Why? Because it's his joy. In John 17, 13, Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, Now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not in the world. He's saying they live in enemy territory, So they need to have his joy made full in them. What Paul is telling us back in 1 Thessalonians is that God has a joy for us. There's a joy from Jesus. There's a joy from the Holy Spirit. And tribulation can't touch it. God's joy can be made full in us in the midst of much tribulation. And it is in that sense that they imitated Paul. The word came to them, and there was trouble everywhere. And yet, there was joy. We can have that kind of joy. We must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so that this kind of example, this kind of joy will live out before others. So when trouble comes into our lives, there's joy. And others can imitate that. He's telling us that even in the midst of trouble, Jesus has given us a joyful life that's centered on his word. I love that about God's word. It goes beyond our circumstances. That even when things are hard, there's joy. How can that be? Because our focus is not on our circumstances, but on God and who he is in the midst of our circumstance. James 1 tells us to consider it all joy. It means nothing but joy when we encounter various trials. Consider means to think carefully about, especially with regard to how we will take action. When we're in a trial, we are to think carefully about it in such a way that it will guide or govern our action. That means we choose to be joyful in our trials, knowing what God will do in the midst of them. In other words, joy in the midst of hard times is a discipline that we need to cultivate. When we choose to focus on God and His grace and His mercy, He gives us a joy that goes far beyond our circumstances. Now, I want to end this morning with a quote that I want you to think about because I think it gives us great insight into this kind of joy. This is from Jerry Bridges. It's from The Practice of Godliness. He says, the purpose of rejoicing is not so we can feel better emotionally, though that will happen. The purpose of joy is to glorify God by demonstrating to an unbelieving world, or I might add, to a believing world, that our loving and faithful Heavenly Father cares for us and provides for all 
that we need. That's the joy that comes from Jesus, that comes from the Holy Spirit. And that is the kind of joy that he wants to produce in us. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we will find that kind of joy, the joy that the world cannot understand, the joy that comes from you regardless of our circumstances, regardless if we're walking through hard times, if we're walking through maybe times that are easier. But when we're walking through tribulation, I pray that we will find in you that kind of joy that only comes from you as we serve one another. And Father, I pray that in that joy we will imitate you and we will be an example to others. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Thank you that as we looked at it today, we are reminded that there is really only one message, and it's the gospel. I pray that it will permeate our thinking so that when we minister to one another, we will be thinking of your gospel truths and how we can encourage one another in them. And Father, we're reminded that ministry requires an uncommon messenger. God, that is not something we can stir up within ourselves, but we know that it is the work of the gospel in us. But Father, I pray that we would long to be that uncommon messenger, that we would be gentle with one another as we bring the gospel message to one another. And then again, Father, that our joy would permeate everything that we do. Again, because it's your joy. Thank you that you are so gracious to us, so merciful, that you would give us that kind of joy in the midst of hard times. Father, we love you. We want to be used by you in ministry as we serve one another, as we serve those in our church, outside of our church. And so I pray that we won't just stop after this morning thinking about these, but that we will think about these throughout our days, throughout the week, as we, uh, until we continue next week, that you would do your work in us so that we can be imitatable women. For your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.